welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Hey everybody, it's your girl Wynn Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone tonight. And your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for yourselves and everyone else all over the world. And to holy love and respect ourselves, no matter what, is to love the mighty I Am Presence that dwells within us. And when we sincerely love and respect that spirit of the living God within ourselves, then loving everyone else or any of God's creation becomes effortless. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and light. And y'all be loved. Human perfection resides in this, that the love of God should conquer a man's heart and possess it wholly, and even if it does not possess it wholly it should predominate in the heart over the love of all other things. Nevertheless, rightly to understand the love of God is so difficult a matter that one sect of theologians have altogether denied that man can love a being who is not of his own species, and they have defined the love of God as consisting merely in obedience. Those who hold such views do not know what real religion is. The first cause is this, that man loves himself and the perfection of his own nature. This leads him directly to the love of God, for man's very existence and man's attributes are nothing else but the gift of God, but for whose grace and kindness man would never have emerged from behind the curtain of non-existence into the visible world. Man's preservation and eventual attainment to perfection are also, entirely dependent upon the grace of God. It would indeed be a wonder, if one should take refuge from the heat of the sun under the shadow of a tree and not be grateful to the tree, without which there would be no shadow at all. Precisely in the same way, were it not for God, man would have no existence nor attributes at all, wherefore, then, should he not love God, unless he be ignorant of him? Doubtless fools cannot love him, for the lover of him springs directly from the knowledge of him, and whence should a fool have knowledge? The second cause of this love is that man loves his benefactor and in truth his only benefactor is God, for whatever kindness he receives from any fellow creature is due to the immediate instigation of God. Whatever motive may have prompted the kindness he receives from another, whether the desire to gain religious merit or a good name, God is the agent who set that motive to work. The third cause is the love that is aroused by contemplation of the attributes of God, his power and wisdom, of which human power and wisdom are but the feeblest reflections. This love is akin to that we feel to the great and good men of the past, such as the Imam Malik and the Imam Shafi, though we never expect to receive any personal benefits from them and is therefore a more disinterested kind of love. God said to the prophet David, That servant is dearest to me who does not seek me from fear of punishment or hope of reward, but to pay the debt due to my deity. And in the Psalms, it is written, Who is a greater transgressor than he who worships me from fear of hell or hope of heaven? If I had created neither, should I not then have deserved to be worshipped? The fourth cause of this love is the affinity between man and God, 
which is referred to in the saying of the prophet, Verily God created man in his own likeness. Furthermore, God has said, My servant seeks proximity to me, that I may make him my friend, and when I have made him my friend I become his ear, his eye, his tongue. Again, God said to Moses, I was sick, and thou didst not visit me? Moses replied, O God! Thou art Lord of heaven and earth, how cool didst thou be sick? God said, A certain servant of mine was sick, hadst thou visited him, thou wouldst have visited me. Many claim to love God, but each should examine himself as to the genuineness of the love which he professes. The first test is this, he should not dislike the thought of death, for no friend shrinks from going to see a friend. The prophet said, Whoever wishes to see God, God wishes to see him. It is true a sincere lover of God may shrink from the thought of death coming before he has finished his preparation for the next world, but if he is sincere, he will be diligent in making such preparation. The second test of sincerity is that a man should be willing to sacrifice his will to God's, should cleave to what brings him nearer to God, and should shun what places him at a distance from God. The fact of a man sinning is no proof that he does not love God at all, but it proves that he does not love him with his whole heart. The same Fudhale said to a certain man, If anyone asks you whether you love God, keep silent, for if you say, I do not love him, you are an infidel, and if you say, I do, your deeds contradict you. The third test is that the remembrance of God should always remain fresh in a man's heart without effort, for what a man loves he constantly remembers, and if his love is perfect, he never forgets it. It is possible, however, that, while the love of God does not take the first place in a man's heart, the love of the love of God may, for love is one thing, and the love of love, another. The fourth test is that he will love the Quran, which is the word of God, and Muhammad, who is the prophet of God, if his love is really strong, he will love all men, for all are God's servants, nay, his love will embrace the whole creation, for he who loves anyone loves the works he composes and his handwriting. The fifth test is, he will be covetous of retirement and privacy for purposes of devotion, he will long for the approach of night, so that he may hold intercourse with his friend without let or hindrance. If he prefers conversation by day and sleep at night to such retirement, then, his love is imperfect. God said to David, Be not too intimate with men, for two kinds of persons are excluded from my presence, those who are earnest in seeking reward and slack when they obtain it, and those who prefer their own thoughts to the remembrance of me. The sign of my displeasure is that I leave such to themselves. In truth, if the love of God really takes possession of the heart, all other love is excluded. A sixth test is that worship becomes easy. A certain saint said, During one space of thirty years I performed my night devotions with great difficulty, but during a second space of thirty years they became a delight. When love to God is complete, no joy is equal to the joy of worship. The seventh test is that lovers of God will love those who obey Him and hate the infidels and the disobedient, as the Quran says, they are strenuous against the unbelievers and merciful to each other. The prophet once asked God and said, O Lord! Who are thy lovers? And the answer came, Those who cleave to me as a child to its mother, take refuge in the remembrance of me as a bird seeks the shelter of its nest, and are as angry at the sight of sin, as an angry lion who fears nothing. The Alchemy of Happiness, by Al Ghazali, translated by Claude Field, 1909. Volume 2, Chapter 2 
for the objector to affirm that the Braham adepts and the fakirs admit that of themselves they are powerless and can only act with the help of disembodied human spirits, is to state that these Hindus are unacquainted with the laws of their sacred books and even the meaning of the word Petrus. The laws of Manu, the Atirvaveda, and other books, prove what we now say. All that exists, says the Atirvaveda, is in the power of the gods. The gods are under the power of magical conjurations. The magical conjurations are under the control of the Brahmins. Hence the gods are in the power of the Brahmins. This is logical, albeit seemingly paradoxical, and it is the fact. And this fact will explain to those who have not hitherto had the clue, among whom Jacolyo must be numbered, as will appear on reading his works, why the fakir should be confined to the first, or lowest degree of that course of initiation whose highest adepts, or hierophants, are the sannyasi, or members of the ancient supreme council of seventy. Moreover, in Book 1, of the Hindu Genesis, or Book of Creation of Manu, the Petrus are called the lunar ancestors of the human race. They belong to a race of beings different from ourselves, and cannot properly be called human spirits in the sense in which the spiritualists use this term. This is what is said of them. Then they, the gods, created the Jakshas, the Rakshasas, the Pisaches, the Ganderbas, and the Asparas, and the Asuras, the Nagas, the Sarpas and the Suparnas, and the Petrus, lunar ancestors of the human race. See Institutes of Manu, Book 1, Sloka 37, where the Petrus are termed progenitors of mankind. The Petrus are a distinct race of spirits belonging to the mythological hierarchy or rather to the capitalistical nomenclature, and must be included with the good genii, the demons of the Greeks, or the inferior gods of the invisible world. And when a fakir attributes his phenomena to the Petrus, he means only what the ancient philosophers and theurgists meant when they maintained that all the miracles were obtained through the intervention of the gods, or the good and bad demons, who control the powers of nature, the elementals, who are subordinate to the power of him who knows. H.P. Blavatsky A ghost or human phantom would be termed by a fakir, palate, or chutna, as that of a female human spirit Pikalpai, not Petrus. True, Patara means, plural, fathers, ancestors, and Petra I is a kinsman, but these words are used in quite a different sense from that of the Petrus invoked in the mantras. To maintain before a devout Braham or a fakir that anyone can converse with the spirits of the dead, would be to shock him with what would appear to him blasphemy. Does not the concluding verse of the Bhagavad state that this supreme felicity is alone reserved to the holy sannyasis, the gurus, and yogis? Long before they finally rid themselves of their mortal envelopes, the souls who have practiced only good, such as those of the sannyasis and the vanaprasthas, acquire the faculty of conversing with the souls which preceded them to the swarga. In this case the Petrus instead of genii are the spirits, or rather souls, of the departed ones. But they will freely communicate only with those whose atmosphere is as pure as their own, and to whose prayerful kalasa, invocation, they can respond without the risk of defiling their own celestial purity. When the soul of the invocator has reached the seidiyam or perfect identity of essence with the universal soul, when matter is utterly conquered, then the adept can freely enter into daily and hourly communion with those who, though unburdened with their corporeal forms, are still themselves progressing through the endless series of transformations included in the gradual approach to the Paramatma, or the Grand Universal Soul. H.P. Blavatsky The I Am 
discourses, volume 16. The loved ones of the sacred fire, we enter in tonight to the use of one of those magnificent activities of life that shall forever bring you happiness, as you understand the fullness of what it means to live to the honor of God and use this victorious flame of eternal love from the heart of your mighty I am presence and the ascended host into all physical conditions. The angelic host who assist me, and who are always willing to carry out the call of love, are ever awaiting an opportunity to answer your calls, when you understand that to draw the sacred fire into the physical octave of earth, means that it can only be released by the power of our love, and that of your own I am presence, of course, with which we are one. That power of the sacred fire of our love can only come by conscious command into the outer use of those under this radiation, who understand the fullness of what the mighty I am presence means, and whose use its authority and power to command into physical conditions those activities of the sacred fire that bring our perfection here. To a large extent, mankind's devotion to God is an innate recognition of the existence of a power to help the outer activities of mankind, and that power is greater than the rest of mankind's creation. But in a very large degree, mankind's call to the great God presence of life, whether they know the I am or not, is principally an asking for things. It's an asking for help. Therefore, if the outer self of each individual were taught that the duty of the outer self is to live in this world and produce the perfection that proves and glorifies the mighty I am presence that placed you here, then the return into your outer use of the things from our octave would be very much more rapid, and very much more wonderful. I hope someday the I am student body will live simply to enjoy praising God. The angelic host, whose direction of the sacred fire of the miracle love of life is ever surging into outer conditions, exist and only have the consciousness within them of releasing the love of the sacred fire that praises and glorifies the mighty I am presence. And if mankind could understand that each individual has the authority and power to command each day's events to manifest the perfection of eternal love that bears witness to the reality and existence of this mighty I am presence, and the use of those powers is only for the production of greater perfection and to glorify that presence. Beloved Archangel Michael So often through the centuries, individuals have been taught that they must do this and must do that to keep themselves out of, may I say, something worse. But individuals are not made to understand that they are here in this world of their own choice. They have come into every embodiment by their own free will, and since they took the responsibility of directing and qualifying a certain amount of the energy of the universe, the energy of life, they took that responsibility to manifest perfection in the outer, that it might glorify and reveal the inner. And here mankind, throughout the centuries, have forgotten there was an inner. Their reference to the great God presence of life, as they call it, God, in most cases, is a hazy, indefinite, mental concept only, except in conditions of dire distress when, in that intense feeling that goes up in the call for assistance, the higher mental body, or someone of the angelic host or the ascended masters, has manifested the likeness of the divine being to the sight of the outer self, that the individual might feel there was an individual being, giving the help. That is why it is necessary that this chart be held before the sight of mankind and explained so they understand that it is an individual focus of help, into the outer activities, that is required in order to free individuals from the limitations of this world. Dear hearts, this world to begin with didn't have any limitations. God doesn't create a planet and place limitations upon it. This world and all upon it, in the beginning, was free for the use of mankind, and they had freedom to use the blessings that have been given. 
God never placed the limitations of this world into manifestation. Mankind has created this condition, and therefore, mankind must uncreate it. So, when you were brought to realize that the duty of the outer self is to place service to this mighty I am presence first, before any outer, physical demand, then you will have your house in divine order. Then you will find the pathway ahead of you clear. So long as you think the things of the outer world are more important than your application, you will remain in your chains and problems indefinitely. And I shall break that thing tonight, if you decide to place God first. Applause, audience rising. Thank you, precious ones. Won't you be seated please? Beloved Archangel Michael, 